0: JesusCenteredLife.com. So today, our topic for this episode is about the compartmentalized life. Now here's the question behind that. What's keeping us from growing more deeply in our relationship with Jesus? What's keeping us from that? So most of us live our lives in compartments. We have like our work compartment and our home compartment And the compartment for whatever that third place place is, like Starbucks is a lot of people's third place, but it could be your CrossFit gym or other places are your third place besides your home and your work. So those are some compartments we live in, but more than that, we have a compartment that straddles all the other compartments, and it's the stuff we listen to and watch and click on every day. Uh, You might call it our media diet, uh, the compartment that we live in when we want to be entertained or engaged in something so functionally we often invite Jesus to influence and guide our lives in only certain compartments so like when we go to church we expect Jesus to have influence in our church compartment that makes sense to us and uh, most people would say but yeah and Jesus is has influence over compartments outside of church but the evidence shows that mostly he doesn't have much influence in those other compartments, and that's mostly because we haven't really invited him in. So this compartmentalized life can lead to tension and dissonance in our soul, because we know that deep down we're not living congruently, we're not living the same person in each compartment. So the antidote to this, though, is something we'd rather not look at. (laughs) So... We'd rather not think about what we'd have to do to be more congruent. So that's what Becky and I are going to explore today. What does it mean to live a decompartmentalized life, a more congruent life? So if you're a new listener, my name is Rick Lawrence. I'm author of the Jesus Centered Life and editor of the Jesus Centered Bible, among other things I do. And I'm here with my co host and friend, The Becky Nader.
1: I am now being called the Becky Nader by other people. Yeah, I started a a, I started a movement.
0: Start a movement.
1: I get emails. Hey Becky Nader.
0: Yeah. People wouldn't be doing that if they didn't resonate with its deep truth. <laughs> That's what I'm saying. So Becky Nader and I today are gonna talk about this. So t- and we want to start off with a survey that I actually gave to teenagers this summer, twenty thousand Christian teenagers this summer. Every summer I, I give them this a long survey to fill out. They're all participants in our summer work camp program, which is um, the the leading summer work camp program in the world. It's really amazingly done, and just as a little plug for it, um, I help design the evening and morning programs for this, and they're all Jesus-centered, and they're all experiential and interactive, and people love our group work camps. So we'll put a link on this page back to group work camps. If you have teenagers that you think might like to get involved in this, or if you have college-age students who might want to be a leader at one of these camps, put a link on there for you. So we give out this massive survey every every summer. I think it's the largest survey of Christian teenagers in the world every year.
1: Wow, that's impressive.
0: So uh, this year, I, I asked them a bunch of questions that I wanted them to answer, is this statement always true, sometimes true, or never true? And these were all statements that are sort of um, out there in the ether, in the wider culture, and in the Christian culture. So so again, I, I was, uh, I'm going to tell you a statement here, and I'm, just to, to remind you, I'm asking them to respond as if it, it, with their vote as to whether this is always true, sometimes true, or never true. So here's the statement. The stuff I watch, TV, movies, and online, does not have an impact on my relationship with Jesus. So that's the statement I'm asking them to react to. And only 1 out of 10 kids disagreed with that statement, meaning only one out of ten students said, yes, the stuff I watch and listen to and click on actually does have uh, an impact on my relationship with Jesus. Nine out of ten students said either, not really, or absolutely not, those other compartments don't spill into my compartment of Jesus at all, and I don't really want him spilling into my other compartments, he needs to stay in his compartment in his church compartment. So 9 out of 10 young people are basically in that place, and we know from our research that young people, despite what we think, actually uh, very closely reflect their parents' own attitudes about things relative to their faith. So we know that it's not just students saying this. If we were to poll adults in the same way, we would get similar statistics. 9 out of 10 don't really functionally believe that Jesus has much to do with the other compartments, especially the entertainment compartment of their life. The two different compartments don't influence each other.
1: So that's not really surprising. <clears throat> one, I, I've read some stuff about the new Gen Z um, generation, and I think you said that they were being called the screener generation. Yep. But one thing I really like about them, other than the fact that they celebrate nerds, so I feel like I finally have a generation <laughs> that's going to like me. <laughs> um, is, this is a
0: revelation to me that the yes! becky Nader is a nerd. I, I had no idea that you self-identify as a nerd. I
1: definitely do.
0: You're like one of the coolest people I know, no. so this is kind of blowing my mind. Total nerd. All right
1: um but they they highly value honesty and so it's not surprising to me i if i had taken this when i was a teenager i would have answered it correctly oh. um even though it wasn't true um but this generation i'm told they are very honest and so they yep. are going to tell you the truth um but i would say that when i was um their age that's how i that's how my christian culture in my home was we um, we went to church. We were part of Awanas. My my, my um, parents were on, you know, deacons, and they led youth groups. Um, but it was the Bibles. They were all in those, like, fancy carriers. They got dropped in the basket fancy by the carriers. doors <laughs> when we came home. In those
0: cloth carriers with handles?
1: Yeah, the little handles. And they yeah. had pockets, and, and we all had, had different designs. And they
0: had flowers on them and stuff yeah. like that. Or the guys had swords.
1: Yeah, the those. guys had, you know, the, the leather, manly ones. Yeah. But we were a house of mostly females, so there was a lot of pink and purple. Um, But they got dropped in the basket next to the door, um, the front door, and we came home from church, and that was that. And if we went to youth group, we would probably pick them up again, but they weren't, you know, it wasn't, it was was compartmentalized. There Mm -hmm. was youth group, there was church, and then there was the rest of life.
0: And would you say, uh, so implied in this is that this is what it was like then, I live a less compartmentalized life now, or do you still see yourself sort of gravitationally pulled back into that kind of mindset.
1: I definitely see myself gravitationally pulled back into that mindset. And I think especially it's it's different now that I work for a Christian company, but there was about 5 or 6 years that I worked out in the, you know, in the secular world and it's a lot harder. So if you're in that situation, probably most of you are, that's harder um, if your spouse isn't a Christian or doesn't have the same um, value of that of that term as you, um, or you live it differently. That can be hard too. And so I think that there's definitely when when you talk Rick about having this like totally decompartmentalized faith, I'm like I want that so bad, but it's not easy. It's something you have to work yeah, towards. Yeah, and you
0: and regular <clears throat> listeners will know that we're not about even when you say that we're not about uh, summoning up greater levels of discipline and willpower to get yep. there, that never worked for me. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, my, my epiphany in my own Jesus-centered life was directly about this, that I had I, was, uh, I had a guy write in my high school yearbook, You're the Hardest Trier I've Ever Known. Mm-hmm. It was the one honest statement in my entire yearbook that somebody wrote to me, and um, at the time I took great pride in it, as I got older, I saw more and more the fallacy behind that statement that if life is about trying harder, we're headed for a cliff because we can't we just can't try any harder than we already are. And if that's the path trying harder, then ultimately what we're saying is my willpower is dur- directly correlates to my own maturity in Christ and there's a fallacy embedded in there. So my epiphany was Uh, This is not about trying harder to get better. It's not about working harder, being more disciplined. It's about a greater degree of abandonment to Jesus because of organic means. Just because I'm captured by him, and as I'm captured by him, I become more attached to him, and as I become more attached to him, fruit happens. Jesus is laying it out this bluntly. This is what will happen if you become more attached to me. And the way you become more attached to me is not by working harder at it, It's by seeing my heart more clearly, because then you'll be captured by my heart. So when we think about this compartmentalization, and how do we get there, and how do we get to a decompartmentalized life, Jesus has tremendous compassion on us relative to the compartments we're trying to live in. He understands that if we're not living congruently, um, the same person in each of these compartments, and awake and alive to the influences that are coming at us and that we're eating on, um, then, then we're going to live in dissonance and tension, and he has compassion for us. In fact, what he's really trying to get at relative to our compartments is that um, you don't have just a physical diet, you have a soul diet as well. You're eating things that are affecting your physical body, and you're also taking in things that are affecting your soul's health. So um, here's a blast of truth from Matthew 23. If it's a blast of truth, you you can have a pretty good guess that he's talking to religious leaders, and he's blasting, but here's what he says in Matthew 23. What sorrow awaits you, teachers of religious law and you Pharisees, you hypocrites! For you are so careful to clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside you're filthy, full of greed and self-indulgence, you blind Pharisee, first wash the inside of this cup and the dish, and then the outside will become clean too. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. So he's really, you know, he's talking about our interior life and our exterior life. And he starts off, I think it's important to remember, that he starts off by saying, what sorrow awaits you? Mm-hmm. So here's the compassion of Jesus. He's about to blast them, but where's it coming from? He feels for the sorrow that uh, that awaits them, because they have paid attention to the outside, you know, their their facade, but they have neglected and even demeaned and compartmentalized their interior life. And he's saying that's that's going to lead to sorrow for you.
1: And if you missed last week's episode, uh, we talk specifically about times when Jesus was pretty, stern like this, um, specifically often with religious leaders <laughs> and his followers, for the for the most part, so you might want to go back and listen to that one.
0: Yeah. So if we think about this in terms of Jesus' compassion for us, and he sees the sorrow that awaits us, if we live incongruently, um, if we make believe that the things that we're taking into our soul don't really matter inside, Sorrow awaits us, is what Jesus is saying. And so what is his standard? Well, he, he here's another, it, it, it's not really a blast, it's kind of a strange story he tells in Luke chapter 7, but I think embedded in this little story, he's laying it out for us. So here's what he says. He's, again, he's speaking to the religious leaders and Pharisees, but his disciples are around him, other people are milling around, they are hearing him say this as well. So, But he's directing these comments to the religious leaders, and he says... "'To what can I compare the people of this generation?' Jesus asked. "'How can I describe them?' Well, they're like children playing a game in the public square. They complained to their friends, "'Well, we played wedding songs, and you didn't dance. And so we played funeral songs, and you didn't weep. For John the Baptist didn't spend his time eating bread or drinking wine, and you say, "'He's possessed by a demon.'" The Son of Man himself, on the other hand, feasts and drinks. Jesus is saying, I feast and drink. Unlike John the Baptist, I do go to feasts. I eat and drink. And you say he's a glutton and a drunkard, and a friend of tax collectors and other sinners. But wisdom is shown to be right by the lives of those who follow it. So he's saying, you'll know the fruit of how somebody lives. You'll, you'll, you'll know the wisdom of, of how somebody lives by the fruit of their life. Is the fruit of their life, a life-giving, powerful, impactful, a force for good in the world, or is it the other? And he's saying um, whether what, what you're taking into yourself on the surface isn't the primary issue, it's how that stuff impacts you as it goes into yourself. So let's make a comparison to our physical diet and talk about that a little bit. So does Jesus care what we put into our body? Our physical body? Well, I think most people would agree today that um, obesity is is not Jesus's preferred option for our physical body. We're a, we're a physical body, a soul body, a spirit, all, th- all three matter, and if, and if we separate them out, we're like the Gnostics who believed that only um, spiritual things mattered, and the physical body was evil, and so you needed to compartmentalize the two. That was uh, branded a heresy. Uh, It's not true. We're integrated people. So does Jesus care about what we put in our bodies? Yes. Does he care about what we put in our souls? Yes, he does. Um, In fact, Jesus, in John 6, says, if you want any part of me, you're going to have to eat my body and drink my blood. He's saying, when you eat, take something into yourself Um, he's not really saying, eat my body and drink my blood, he's speaking metaphorically here. So he is speaking about the soul. When you are eating something that goes into your soul, I want it to be me. And when you're drinking something that goes into your soul, I want it to be me. Eat me and drink me. So what have we learned, you and I, Becky, about nutrition relative to overall fitness? We were talking about this the other day.
1: So, <clears throat> I did an experiment um, last, uh, well, this year. It was in about January or February-ish time. I decided to give up all diet challenges, which I had been pl- had been plaguing my life for many, many years. <laughs> unfinished most of them, and I was going to do this diet challenge where I just I, I decompartmentalized my my body and self image and diet challenges from Jesus. And I did this radical thing where I just every day kind of prayed, God, what do you want me to eat or drink or exercise or whatever? And I'm a big meal planner, so I usually do this during um, Saturday mornings with coffee. And I'm going to share one story that I think was one of the most impactful parts of this journey. And if you want to listen to the whole journey, you can go to They Say Podcast and listen to episode five. But what happened was I was doing this journaling, and and Jesus said specifically to me that he wanted me to go shopping and buy something for myself. So he didn't give me a diet challenge. He didn't give me a nutrition challenge. He actually told me to go shopping. (laughs) And at the time, my husband and I were on a very strict budget because we were saving for some things, and I wasn't spending any money. And he told me to go to one of these used – like stores, okay? And ladies, if you're listening, this might happen to you. When I go shopping, sometimes I get too specific in my mind about what I want, and then I can never find it. (laughs) This I know this happens to some of you because we've talked about it. And so on the way, I was thinking about this specific shirt that my sister has that I think she looks beautiful in, and I was thinking, oh, it would be nice to find something like that. But I'm going to this used, like, reseller store, so how could that happen? And I walked in, and on the mannequin was that shirt. I'm not even kidding. It's the (laughs) same brand. And it was like less than $10. And what Jesus was really speaking to me about was about beauty. Sometimes diet and exercise challenges can be about health, but in particular what he was showing me was that he cared about um, beauty and that he cared that I believed that I was beautiful because he made me beautiful. And he cared more about the heart effort that was happening than he did in the challenge (laughs) and self-discipline that we put into diet and exercise, and that actually was a lesson that has stayed with me um, Mm. pretty deeply.
0: There's a couple of things there. What One, uh, go back to what Jesus said to the Pharisees about the outside and the inside of the cup, and you mentioned beauty. So Jesus, um, you know, he acknowledges physical beauty. We were created to acknowledge physical beauty in our life, but he also says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But inside the cup is what really matters. The beauty that's inside the cup mm-hmm. matters more. Pay attention to that. So that's one thing that strikes me, that in our diet plans, whether it's physical nutrition or soul nutrition, the uh, target we're aiming for is beauty, mm-hmm. always. Is that is it beautiful? You could. It's a strange word to use about our food. Is this yeah. food beautiful? But the the essence of beauty is, is it uplifting, is it uh, nourishing, is it adding life to you or not? That's what beauty does. And so Jesus is saying beauty matters both physically and for our soul. In my own case, I lost uh, a few years ago 45 pounds, and I I tell people I kind of lost it accidentally, because um, my health club was running a contest for six weeks, that if you won the contest, you'd get a year uh, membership at the health club for your whole family. At the time, that was hugely important to me. So I investigated a little bit without telling anybody. I didn't want my family to know because they'd all jump on the bandwagon, yes, dad, do it. And I didn't want that pressure. So I found out that there was only like 40 people that joined this thing. And by the time it's over this fitness challenge, only about 25 are left. I thought, I bet I could win this thing. So then I hesitantly told my family, I'm thinking about doing this. And, of course, they said, yes, Dad, lose 45 pounds. So I did it for six weeks. I changed my diet, and I changed how often I worked out. What I discovered through this process, I did lose in that initial six-week time frame. I lost 27 pounds, and then I went on to lose 45. I did not win. I didn't even get in the top three. Uh, Apparently, other people had nothing to do with their day except lose work weight. Out
1: all day. <laughs> yeah.
0: So, so but I, I lost weight, but along the way, I realized I, a huge life understanding happened to me in that, and that was, you can work out as much as you want, but if you do not change your nutrition, you're not going to lose weight, and you're not going to feel fit. Well, I changed my diet, and I took some things out of my diet, and I put new things in that were really good tasting, much better food, and I thought I was going to feel kind of deprived actually, I, I really loved the new food I was eating. It tasted better, it tasted fresher, and I found that over time, I actually preferred it to the old food I was having, and if I tried to go back to that old food, I felt rotten inside. Mm-hmm. So it created a, a huge momentum shift in my life that continues to this day, and I'm really grateful for it, but I feel much better physically putting healthier food in my body. I can't believe how much better I feel. And you hear people say this all the time, but it's just true. So I tricked myself into losing 45 pounds by trying to win this contest, but along the way, I got this great gift of realizing changing my nutrition is a big deal. Well, let's let's think about that in terms of what we watch, for instance, we were talking about this the other day. Some of the most popular shows on TV today are on HBO, for instance. Um, or other cable channels. So The Walking Dead is super popular, and Game of Thrones is super popular, and I saw about uh, ten minutes the other day of this new show Westworld. And all of these shows have a certain commonality to them. The, the language is vulgar because that seems more real, the sexuality is out there because that seems more real, and the violence is in your face because that seems more real. Reality is their goal, and the gritty reality is their goal. And these shows have a lot of fans. Uh, Probably a lot of people that are listening to this right now love these shows, because these shows also attract some of the best storytellers around. But around them, orbiting around all these great stories, are things that are really junk food for the soul, I'll I'll say. Violence, uh, especially violence concerning women, um, vulgarity, Now, it's one thing to use strong language, but to use strong language just for shock value or to show how real you are is another issue. There's vulgarity, there's sexuality, there's all of this stuff that is presented to us as real.
1: And if we look across the ocean and we look at something that might be coming our way, in China right now, my my cousin lives in China, and he said that virtual reality cafes are really, really popular. In fact, um, studies have shown that young people... Are having less sex now because they're enjoying a, a virtual reality experience instead of a real life experience. And for, for him, he's watching this culture of people leaving work, going into these virtual reality cafes, and spending their whole evening there.
0: Yeah, and, it's, and it's, it's hard to pass by an open thing of donuts for me and not want a donut, but if I ate donuts all day long, if I had no consequence for it, like if I was alone in the world, surrounded by donuts. Maybe I'd eat donuts all day long, but it wouldn't take long before you'd feel rotten inside. You'd start getting sick. Right, you'd get sick. But it's not an immediate uh, situation. You don't have an immediate reaction to, typically, to having a bad diet. The consequences play out over time. It's the same is true with our soul. We don't have an immediate consequence for taking in something to our soul that is damaging to our soul or unnutritious to our soul or not beautiful, there's no immediate consequence, but over time it begins to uh, create an obese soul, not a fit soul. That's what Jesus is trying to help us to avoid, because he sees the sorrow coming for us. Not right now, it's coming. So relative to violence, uh, there's this study by the American Psychological Association and the National Institute of Mental Health that identified these major effects of children seeing violence on TV. So don't just, when I tell you these things, don't just think it's only about children. Of course it impacts people of every age, but they, they found that children became less sensitive to the pain and suffering of others when they watched violence on TV, that they were more fearful of the world around them, and that they were more likely to behave in an aggressive or harm, harmful way toward others. Now, this is like common sense
1: well we're seeing this to, we're seeing this right now with adults um, amongst this election I, I would say that all of those same things are true
0: we're right desensitized yeah
1: like we're we're you know we're wary and fearful we're um, less sensitive to the pain and suffering of others you know um, we're becoming more aggressive with our behavior so
0: could it be let me just throw this out this is the premise that all of this started for me could it be that all that you're describing right now, is because we have become so uh, lackadaisical in the diet that we're feeding our souls, especially as followers of Jesus, that we have become desensitized to these things in general, and more accepting of this kind of behavior with real people, not just people on TV shows that we watch, but now we're desensitized to it and more accepting of it. You know, well, that's just the way the world is. Um, I think that this is true, that we have allowed ourselves to slowly, subtly get on a bad diet um, for our soul, and the consequences of that are be, are showing now in the midst of this heightened election season. So you found a couple of interesting things about desensitization—I can't even say it—desensitization. I still <laughs> you, didn't say you it just right. <laughs>
1: said, you just said lackadaisical <laughs> in a sentence, and I was thinking, I need to try that. Yeah, so desensitization, oh, I can't you said say. It right. it. Did I? Okay. Yeah. This is something that, you know, we usually hear it say like you've become desensitized to that and So I decided to do some research because what we were talking about uh, with this whole compartmentalization is it's really the the psychological term of desensitization. And here's the thing that was really weird to me. I actually was I was Googling it and I asked the people around me, is that word like a Christian word? Like, did I get that from being like around Christian environments? And and they were like, no, that's a psychological term. But when I Google searched it and you can do this, too, um, for every like. Ten websites, only one of them was an article from any sort of, like, journal or or psychology. The rest of them were all Christian websites, Hmm. which told me that Christians are more concerned about being desensitized than the rest of the world is right now. Hmm. I mean, I'm making a big leap there, but...
0: But it's it's the same thing I said before, when I started going back to, uh, after my six-week period, I, I ate a few of the foods that I hadn't before, and, and I felt that. Mm-hmm. Well, that was a motivator for me. And if what you're saying is true, we have the Spirit of Jesus living in us, and He's kind and compassionate enough to make us um, have dissonance inside about our soul diet, that, that we are concerned that we might be becoming desensitized to things. We're concerned about our diet, mm-hmm. and that's the gift of the Holy Spirit in us, to nudge us into concern about it. You found something I thought was interesting about how psychology today defines compartmentalization. So here's the definition that you found. It's an unconscious psychological defense mechanism we use to avoid cognitive dissonance or the mental discomfort and anxiety caused by a person's having conflicting values, cognitions, emotions, beliefs, et cetera, within themselves. It's basically saying we compartmentalize because we feel dissonance in our life between our two, our multiple worlds. So we cr- create compartments for them, uh, like the church compartment, where we can leave that compartment and go into another compartment and not feel tension or dissonance about our change in behavior because, oh, that's not, that's just for that compartment. So it's a way to reduce the dissonance, and actually, Jesus was all about introducing dissonance into our lives. He wants us to feel the tension of our incongruence in the way that we live. So let's take a quick look at a couple of uh, stories of Jesus interacting with people, and then we'll close, out, close this one out. So the first one is uh, about his encounter with Zacchaeus in Luke 19, and uh, we all know this story, if you grew up in the Church, from children's ministry, but it's not really a children's story. <laughs> it's like, Jonah isn't really a children's story, and it's told a lot of children's ministry, and neither is Zacchaeus. So Jesus enters Jericho, and he sees a man named Zacchaeus, who is the chief tax collector in the region, which means that, by definition, he was the chief backstabber in the region, because he was basically uh, stealing money from his own people. So he is not a popular person. Um, and uh, Zacchaeus climbs up in a tree um, to get a look at Jesus, because he was too short to see over the the, cloud, the the crowd. Jesus comes by, and he looks up at Zacchaeus and calls him by name, Zacchaeus, quick, come down, I must be a guest in your home today. So Zacchaeus quickly climbs down and takes Jesus to his house. He's, gr- he's with, uh, totally excited that Jesus is coming to his house, But everyone else was, like, shocked that Jesus was going to this guy's house, because this is a profound extension of relationship when you go to somebody's house to eat in this culture. Mm -hmm. So they're like, Jesus, what are you doing? You're going to the backstabber's house, and you're saying, I'm welcoming you into fellowship. What are you doing? And so they, they complain about it, and Jesus says, Salvation's come to this home today, for this man has shown himself to be a true son of Abraham." For the Son of Man came to seek and save those who are lost. He's just explaining what he's doing. Hey, I've come to seek and save those who are lost, and this guy wants to be rescued. So of course I'm delighted to go be with him. This is my job description. But inherent in this is this tension between, um, should Jesus be hanging out with people like Zacchaeus? Um shouldn't he stay, shouldn't those compartments stay with solid walls? And Jesus says, there is no compartment walls, I am the same in every situation, so I'm not worried about going to Zacchaeus' house, and how that will leverage me. But he's certainly not going to engage in anything sinful or backstabbing when he's with Zacchaeus. In fact, he would likely confront that when he's in that environment. But he's not afraid to be in that environment, but he's certainly not going to feed his soul with anything that is unhealthy while he's in that environment. He maintains his boundaries within that environment. So you look like you have something to say about this.
1: I, well, I had a couple of things. One, I, I love the story of Zacchaeus because if you've ever been in ministry, um, particularly with younger people, when you get to experience them um, coming to see the Lord for the first time, there's that like childlike. Ex, like exuberant excitement for Jesus. And I always picture that that's how Zacchaeus was. Yeah. He was so excited. The other thing is, I unfortunately was totally brought to a situation when I was in ministry. We had a lot of rules. <clears throat> if, you, if you work in full-time ministry, you may be familiar with this. There was a lot of rules. And I happened to be hanging out with my um, sister and some of her friends. Um, it was St. Patrick's Day. They were at a bar, and I was with them. And I, I, like you said, I was. I, I had one drink that I was sipping t- tiny sips on all night, so that no one would ever notice that I o- <laughs> never really actually finished a whole drink, and so that whenever they asked me if I needed a drink, I could say, "Oh, I, I have one." <laughs> um, but someone saw me there, and they accused me. Um, and berated me for being in that environment and hanging out with those people. And that was a really tough thing for me to experience, because I spent like seven days a week in some sort of church environment during that time, huh. and I rarely got to spend time with my sister because she didn't want to go to church, and so here I was trying to hang out with her. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, so it, unfortunately that's what came well, to this Well,
0: this is the tension between what Jesus talked about when he said... Uh, Live in the world, but not don't be of the world. What he means is, being of the world means taking something into yourself, right? This is why he say he says, "Eat my body and drink my blood. Take me into you, but don't take that into you." So you can be in the environment, but don't feed your soul on it. Mm-hmm. Don't just as you would. You could go to McDonald's um, to um, hang out with a friend of yours. But don't don't eat a double cheeseburger while you're there. Eat something else. Have
1: a salad. <laughs> there you I go. heard they're delicious.
0: <laughs> and have a salad is a great battle cry for our metaphoric life in the world of our entertainment choices. Have a salad instead. Have something tasty, enjoyable, and nutritious instead. So the other the other quick story here is about. Uh, it, it's not really even a story. It's Matthew five where Jesus is. Uh, talking about, you have heard it said, you know, adultery is punishable by death, but I say to you, if you've um, lusted after a woman in your heart, then you're just as guilty of adultery as if you'd actually done it. This was Jimmy Carter's famous admission that he had lusted after women in his heart, and people found it so quaint and unusual that he said this, and I think in retrospect, I think, wow, he was being just plain honest Mm -hmm. and referencing this in Matthew 5, um, so Jesus is saying, hey, it's not just the outside, again, the outside of your cup that matters, it's what's happening interiorly that matters. I'm not even sure interiorly is a word, but I just used it, so... I think it works. So the upshot here is to remember that we are practicing how to live in the kingdom of God, which is really our home culture that Jesus has came has come to reveal to us, because we know not very little about it even though it's our home culture, when we're born again, we're born into the kingdom of God, but it's not a kingdom or a culture that we're used to. So he's coming to show us what that kingdom is like and invite us to live in it, uh, to make that our home. So I think one, one thing that we could uh, think about relative to our media diet and the stuff coming into our soul is, is it healthy? We read nut- nutrition labels all the time, um, and ask ourselves, is this healthy for me? I do this with films, because I have a 13-year-old and an 18-year-old at home, and we love to watch films together, and we have a hard time finding beautiful films that don't degrade our soul. And so I study the quote-unquote nutrition labels on films, so that we can find the kinds of films that we can actually invite into our soul, and and ha- with no problem. When Everybody knows the feeling of sitting down to watch a movie that you think you can do that with, and then you see a scene and you're like, oh, oh, we should not have chosen this movie. It's happened to us a lot. So um, read the nutrition labels well on the things that you're taking into your soul, and ask yourself, is this going to be healthy for my soul? If not, what is healthy for my soul? What could I choose that would be good nutrition for my soul?
1: I I don't think that you're telling people to stop that they should go as far as to never let their kids watch Harry Potter, or
0: yeah, what you what you did with your your uh, sort of meal planning challenge is central to all of this. You ask Jesus first, because this is not about formulas and yeah. and uh, you know linear progressions through things. This is about a relationship with the Spirit of Jesus in you and asking first, being in relationship with Him around the things that you're putting into yourself and that might be different to different people it's Paul made a yep. Paul made a huge deal of this and said it is different for different people um, but the the key is to be accountable to the spirit of Jesus in you in the end that's the key thing so it's really not about self-denial it's about self-care so what are you putting into your soul that will make your soul healthy and vibrant? So we move toward a healthy diet, not away from an unhealthy one. So we move towards something, not away from something. So the, the idea there is that we're not in this mindset of cutting out bad things from our life, we're in a mindset of moving toward good things in our life, because good things, good nutrition for our soul, makes us feel healthier. Like uh, my story of getting off of all this food, and then when I one of the things I cut out for those six weeks was pizza and I love pizza. We ate pizza every week. Well, I cut it out for six weeks and ate something else. Uh, After the six weeks were over, a couple weeks passed, and and I just really wanted the taste of pizza again. And I remember how I felt after I had that first piece that night. And my body had adjusted to not having food that wasn't very nutritious for me, and it rebelled. (laughs) It didn't like what I put into my body, and it actually really helped me to not slip back into patterns that I had, because it didn't feel good anymore. Well, that's what we're that's what we're saying. What would it look like if you were more paid better attention to what was going into your soul for a while, and then coming out of that discovered that the old choices you were making, you just don't like anymore? You're not really drawn to them because they don't make your soul feel good. I have one last thing I want to throw in, and then you can throw anything uh, in that you want, Becky. I... One other thing to think about here is, our goal is to spend more time with Jesus. Because when we spend more time with Jesus getting to know his heart, his heart rubs off on us. It's like the first book I wrote was a book called The Family Friendly Church, and I had no time and no real desire to co-write a book, but that's what was presented to me. My friend Ben Freudenberg, who is a giant in the world of family ministry in the Church, he had all these pioneering ideas about family ministry, but he wasn't a very good writer. So the, the, a partnership was proposed between himself and me, and I didn't really want to do it. Um, I didn't want to write a book with somebody's, somebody else's vision and mission. But in the end, I thought, I'm going to do this because it will force me to be around Ben a lot, and I bet if I'm around Ben a lot, my life will be changed. And I was right. I spent a lot of time around Ben, and he changed my life just by being around him. And that's what we're talking about being around Jesus, getting to know his heart, the things he likes and doesn't like, the things that are important to him and not. That's what we're after. Spend more time getting to know the heart of Jesus, not just his recipes.
1: The last thing I'm going to mention is Rick wrote this book called Jesus-Centered Life. We talk about it from time to time, but there's a chapter in there where he talks about the Jesus Plus lifestyle, and it would be a great one if you wanted to—I'm going to put a sample chapter on this episode's page that you can download that. That's um, great. But if you haven't read that book yet, it's it's it may be time. It's a good one.
0: All right, gang. Thanks for listening, and remember that you can find out more information about everything we've talked about today and the links that we just mentioned um, in greater detail on JesusCenteredLife.com. Find our podcast section and go to episode number 10. This is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus, a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for the latest podcasts, and we'll talk next time. See you next time, Becky.
1: Bye. Becky Nader. Becky Nader like a robot.